Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 35 this morning. Again, that's Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 35. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is is reduced to a crust of bread and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet, when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have, he may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. Brothers and sisters, thus far the reading of God's word. You may, you may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, as we think about the sexual sins that are proliferating within our culture, how we do pray that you would grant us wisdom to be delivered from them. Uh, but Lord, even as we think about the ways in which these kinds of sins have proliferated, we, we pray particularly that you would, would grant wisdom to your people with regard to the sin of adultery, that you would keep it uh, far from us as a people, that you would deliver it from us, that you would grant that it would be delivered from our children as well. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would do this uh, for the sake of the honor and glory of your name, that we might be counted among those who truly fear you, having as our evidence of this that you have in fact delivered us uh, from these kinds of of sins. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the hope that is found in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our hope is in him. May it be, O Lord, that you would bless now the preaching of your word, that it would be used to strengthen us in our understanding, in our, uh, that it would lead us to repentance, and that we would be able to walk in paths of righteousness. For Lord, we do ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. 
Uh, there is a certain amount of repetition that is necessary and good when it comes to instructions within the scriptures. And we see that even within the scriptures themselves. And you'll note this is, this is one example of, uh, 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 of this in particular, that in Proverbs chapters 1 to 9, Solomon has, has really dealt with the, the sins relating to uh, sexual infidelity greatly. He's, he's covered it at great length. And we saw this in chapter 2. We saw it again in chapter 5. Now he's returning to this again, and he's going to, to uh, hit it hard even one more time in chapter uh, 7. And the reason for this emphasis is that it is necessary for you to know and to understand the nature of these kinds of sins and that they do pose a particularly strong uh, 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 a particularly uh, strong temptation for many people, and they can even destroy lives. There is a particular danger with regard to these sins. These sins are particularly serious. Now, if you think even further about Solomon himself, you'll understand why there is a need for this kind of instruction. Solomon himself fell greatly with regard to these kinds of sins. It's uh, uh, notorious even, the number of wives that Solomon had. And the scriptures even say that these wives turned his heart away from the Lord. There was a connection between sexual immorality and turning away from the Lord. We saw this even with David himself, who was the man after God's own heart, and yet had committed the, the great sin of adultery with Bathsheba, which is also a notorious sin. And so we need to think, brothers and sisters, very carefully about these particular kinds of sins. There is a real danger, and it is right and good that the scriptures repeat themselves sometimes with regard to these sins. Now, this is not a mere repetition. There is development with regard to the exhortations that have been given. Uh, you remember that in chapter 2, Solomon has said that uh, if you heed the, the, the voice of wisdom, and remember wisdom is a person there, is the Lord Jesus Christ, that if you heed wisdom, then you will have the fear of the Lord. And in having the fear of the Lord, then you will be delivered from this kind of, of woman. So the, the most foundational thing that, that Solomon has said so far, and at the very beginning of this book, is that you, you have to uh, put your hope and your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to put your hope in wisdom, the one who is uh, the person who is with God at the beginning, who will pour out the Spirit, as it says in Proverbs chapter 1. Uh, this is the person that you have to have if you are to be delivered uh, from these kinds of sins. And, and this is because there is a relationship further between the fear of the Lord and deliverance from these kinds of sins. Now, in chapter 5, you'll remember, the emphasis was on the destructive nature of the sins, of, of sexual sins, in comparison with, and contrasting that with, uh, the great blessing of, of intimacy with one's wife or one's spouse. And so what Solomon was saying in chapter 5 is, look, it's, it's foolish to to run after these kinds of sins which will destroy your life when God has given you a, a wife of your youth to cling to. Now, the emphasis here in chapter 6 is once again on the destructive nature of the sins, but the way in which Solomon explains this is by using a couple of metaphors to show just how destructive these sins are. Uh, it is like fire by its very nature. You, you can't get close to it without getting burned. It's not possible. And it is, uh, in some ways, uh, it, when you compare it to the sin of theft, it is much worse. There are some ways, Solomon is going to say, where theft can be understood, and yet it's still going to have a great consequence. There is never going to be any way in which adultery will be seen as something light. It will never happen. And therefore, this sin is by its very nature dangerous. 
more so even, as Solomon is saying, than other sins. And what we'll see in chapter 7 is that Solomon gives a particular example of a situation where he saw a young man get ensnared in this sin and shows the end of those kinds of sins. And so Solomon is speaking about the sin of adultery from different angles, and he is speaking about it from so many angles because he wants to impress upon you that this sin is in fact quite significant. And so the message is, do not fall. Do not fall for the temptations of this world into sexual sin. Do not fall for them, especially, especially as we'll see the sin of adultery. Uh, now, you'll remember as we've been going through Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, that uh, there's a, a very common way in which Solomon constructs these passages. So there will usually be, and this, is, this passage is no exception, uh, there is a, some kind of call to listen, to heed the, the words that he's speaking. And then there is the, the warning proper, there is the instruction proper. And so we're going to look at this passage under those two headings. So here the, uh, the, the call to hear is, is uh, fairly long. Uh, we have verses 20 through 24, Solomon's exhortation, uh, the, the call to hear his words. And then we have the main content, the main body of the instruction with regard to the sin of adultery in verses 25 through 35 with the various metaphors that he uses. So we'll look at those in turn. Now, as you look back then at verses 20 through 24, particularly verse 20 as we begin looking a little bit more closely at this passage, uh, you'll note that verse 20 is very similar to uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 uh, in this same book, where there was at the very beginning, immediately after uh, Solomon says that the fear of the Lord is, is the beginning of knowledge, that the, the fear of the Lord is the foundation for everything he's going to say, the very next thing he said, if you remember, was that you need to uh, not abandon the teaching of your mother and your father, that you were to cling to the teaching of your mother and your father. And what we saw at that point in chapter one was that this set the context of wisdom and wisdom instruction in the context of familial instruction. And here Solomon is emphasizing that once again, that there is a need for parents to teach their children with regard to sexual sins and with regard to uh, the, 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 partic the particular danger of adultery. That is what Solomon is emphasizing again here. There is a teaching of the mother and the father. And what he is saying is, is, listen, my son, you know that your mother and I have been teaching you these things. Do not, do not fall for these particular sins. Uh, you'll notice even further that, uh, that he says that these are to be uh, bound upon the heart. They're to be tied around the neck. This is a very similar language to what Solomon used in chapter 3, verse 3. Uh, relating to the, the, the writing of the law of God on the tablets of the heart. Uh, you remember uh, further from uh, other passages in Scripture that the, the writing of the law on the heart is, is actually a, a promise, a blessing in the Old Testament of the new covenant. That what, what, uh, what the prophets say is that uh, you, you'll, you will know the blessings of the new covenant when God himself writes the law on your heart. And that language of writing the law of God on the heart, this is what the Apostle Paul picks up on as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, you, you are our letter of recommendation written with the Spirit of God on the heart. And the point of this, this language is to say that the law of God is to be something that is uh, on the heart in the sense of loved, cherished, always thought about, that there is a, a real change of nature with regard to your relationship to the law, that it's not just the thing that condemns you, that you run from, that you hate because it's a revelation of God. That's the way that unbelievers see the law of God. But what, what he's saying is, is that there is to be this, this, this cherishing of the law of God 
out of love for God himself. That is to say, you are always to be thinking about, the, about this law. You're always to be thinking about this instruction. You're always to be thinking about and pondering the significance of the word of God. Uh, now, even further connections, there, there's a, a pretty clear allusion here as well to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 11, where you remember that Moses, after he gives the greatest of all commandments, uh, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, that then he says that you are to impress these things upon your children. And you are to, in, in, even, even the language is something like inscribe it upon their hearts. You are to implant it deep into the hearts of your children. And this is a, a similar kind of, uh, of setting and instruction. There is the, the language of parental instruction and the language of putting the word of God on the hearts of your children. And you remember that what Moses says after that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when you get up, when you lie down, when you're at home, when you're walking around, you are to be instructing your children in these things. The, the word of God is to be very often on your lips. And so as we think about this initial exhortation, brothers and sisters, we are reminded once again of the great need that there is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for families to have regular times of instruction in the word of God, that it is absolutely necessary. Moses has said it's necessary for the sake of fidelity to God in the context of the covenant. Solomon here is saying that this is necessary if there is to be deliverance from sexual sins for your children, that, that, this, is, that this is part of the means that God uses in order to deliver the next generation from these sins that parents must give this kind of instruction. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask you with regard to this, particularly the parents in the room who still have children in the home, uh, does your home look like the home that is described in Deuteronomy chapter 6? Is there regular instruction about the Word of God? Do you speak about the Word of God when you're at home, when you're out and about, when you lie down, when you get up? Uh, are there regular times when you are teaching your children the word of God, teaching them to love and obey God, but even, even more particularly as it relates to this particular context, teaching them about the nature of sexual sins, the temptations that they will face, and giving them earnest warnings to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, not to, go, not to fall for these kinds of temptations, but to rely upon God to be given the strength to overcome them. Uh, this is what is necessary. Now, even further, with regard to this instruction that is given by parents for children, I know we've, we've talked about this a number of times, but this is one of those things that it is, as uh, Paul wrote, it, to write the same things, to say the same things is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Now, one of the things that is necessary with regard to this, the implications of this, is it means that there, there needs to be, in the home, there needs to be regular time that's set aside for the instruction of children in the Word of God. There needs to be a regular time and there needs to be some kind of formal time that is set aside like, like a dinner where the dinner is made, everyone comes around the table and you, you have the dinner together. There needs to be some kind of time where, where formally there is instruction being given to children in the home. Even beyond that though, parents, you need to be looking for opportunities to speak the word of God to your children in informal situations. If something comes up that could be useful something in a conversation or, or you see something and you think this is related to this particular passage of scripture. There needs to be, uh, it needs to be a normal occurrence within the home that you say, look, 
this is a thing that happens. Here's the biblical principle that helps us to understand uh, how we are to view this particular thing. Uh, that, that's the, the regular kind of instruction of children that needs to occur within the home. This is, this is what Solomon is speaking of. And notice, he has done this enough such that he can say confidently, my son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. He's able to say, we have given this to you. We have given this to you. I'm warning you now not to fall into these sins. But note, uh, if you fall into these sins, we, it's not because we have failed to instruct you. We have given you this instruction. Do not turn away from the instruction that you know in your heart that we have given you. Now, children, those of you who are in the homes of your parents, this is a call to you to listen to your parents as they teach you the word of God. Listen to the word of God even further when you hear it in the church. It is uh, something that, that ought to be the case in, in, in the church, during the church services, that there should be a, a, a growth in a child's ability to follow the sermon uh, over the course of time as they, as they grow up. There needs to be, uh, for those of you who are young, there needs to be a, a real listening to the word of God as it is taught by your parents and by uh, the preacher when, uh, when the word of God is in fact preached. Now, the reason why this is so important is because uh, for those of you who are young, you have to recognize that there are many, there are many people who will try to tempt you to sin. And you will, be, you will hear many things about the kinds of sins that people will want you to commit. And you have to have, in addition to the temptation, in order to have the wisdom to avoid the temptation, you need to have the instruction of the word of God. There needs to be not just always receiving temptation from the world. There also needs to be, in order to fight the temptation, instruction from the Word of God. If you don't receive the instruction from the Word of God, then you are only getting the temptation. You are, you are only getting the message from the world. And that does have an effect over time. And so there is this initial exhortation. You are to hear the Word of God. Uh, parents are to instruct their children. Children are to listen to their parents. Now, why should you do this? Uh, why should you, in fact, instruct your children or children? Why should you listen to your parents? The answer is that Solomon gives is that the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. The idea here is, is, is that uh, if there is no instruction in the word of God, then you're in darkness. And so you won't know where to go. You, you won't know where to put your feet. And if you were to ask, in the midst of all the confusion that we see all around us, how can I know the right way to go? The answer is that you have to have a light. You have to have a light that can guide you on the right path. And what the scriptures consistently say from the beginning to end is that the word of God is that light. The word of God is the light. And therefore, you have to know the word of God. If you do not know the word of God, you don't know where you are going. Now, this is a very easy to see in the world today. There is so much confusion with regard to uh, sexual ethics, uh, morality, even, even from, those, from those particularly who have denied the Christian ethic and the teachings of the scriptures, there is a, a, an un, uh, there's, there's so many contradictions in terms of the way that this ethic is played out, the ethic of the world with regard to sexual sins. There's no way to put forward a principle that you could apply to every single situation. Uh, there, there was, I was just uh, listening to, to something uh, recently that was pointing out that there was, uh, you know, consent is such a big thing. 
today in the world. It's really the, the, only, the only criteria for judging something to be right and wrong according to the standards of the world. And uh, this has led some to, to come to the conclusion that uh, sex work, as it's so-called prostitution, is right and good and needs to be defended. And yet a, a, a consensual relationship could be uh, considered, uh, if their ages aren't right, could be considered rape. And so you have this immense confusion. No, you, you, you cannot make sense of that sort of thing. And yet both of those positions are held today. Why is there so much confusion? The answer is because the world is in darkness. It does not understand right and wrong. It has no idea about right and wrong. It has a lot of strong opinions that are put forward very zealously. And yet if you were to simply ask it to be explained, ask someone to explain it to you, even just the explanation would reveal that there is a massive amount of confusion. And so the question then is, clearly the world is in darkness. It does not understand right and wrong. Where can you go in order to understand where to go? The answer is you must receive the word of God as it is taught by your parents and as it's taught in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even further, what Solomon says in verse 24, and this is the way that he enters into the discussion on, on adultery in particular, he says uh, that uh, with this light of this instruction, the result will be that you will be delivered from the evil woman and from the, the smooth tongue of the adulteress or, or the seductress. Uh, here, this is a, a clear um, building on chapter 2, what Solomon said earlier, where if you heed wisdom, again, the person of wisdom, you will have the fear of God, and that will then lead you to deliverance from the evil woman. And, and therefore, uh, what Solomon is drawing the connection between is, is uh, if you store up the word of God in your heart, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 11, uh, you will not sin against God. It is the word of God that enables you to stand firmly against all of, all of the temptations of this world. The only way to be delivered is wisdom being granted to you through the teaching of the word of God. Uh, now, the particular instruction with regard to adultery begins in verse 25. And this is really introduced in verses 25 and 26. And then, the, as I mentioned, the, the various metaphors that give the nature of adultery is then spoken about after that. Notice in verses 25 and 26, there is this statement, Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, uh, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. And we'll come back to verse 26, which is a, a difficult uh, verse to translate. Uh, but particularly in verse 25, notice there is a, 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 an emphasis on do not lust after her beauty in your heart. The idea being that there can be a way in which you violate the seventh commandment with your heart. Now, this is significant because sometimes it's said that in the Old Testament, there is no, no uh, prohibition against looking at another woman with lust or lusting after her in her heart. But notice, Solomon is saying, if you're going to be delivered from the adulteress, just like the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, you have committed adultery with her in your heart when you've looked. And what Solomon is saying is you are not you are not to lust after her beauty in your heart that is already on the pathway to sin. Not only is it the case that this is, in fact, in the, in the Old Testament, uh, but this is even the pattern that was established with the very first sin. How was it that Satan deceived Eve? It was, it was through visual appeal. It was, it was the, the lust of the eyes, as John says. That's building on what was said in Genesis chapter 3. It was the lust of the eyes that caused Eve to sin. And that was the way in which Satan drew, drew Eve into sin. And it continues to be 
the main way that Satan draws people off into sin. If, if there is the lust of the eyes, that does in fact lead to uh, 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 outward sins that are manifested. That's, that's the way that it happens. And therefore, both the Old and the New Testaments teach that you are to make, as Job has said, a covenant with your eyes. You're to make a covenant with your eyes, not to gaze upon a woman in lust. Uh, that is what you are to do. Uh, now, that's the exhortation that's given, the formal exhortation. Again, it's going to be uh, described further with these uh, various metaphors. Uh, what does verse 26 mean? Uh, the way it's translated here, I'll, I'll read it again, the way it's translated, for by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Now, this is, is not the best way to translate this verse. Uh, this actually, this, this translation that's given here actually requires uh, the text to be amended pretty significantly. Uh, a better way to understand it is the way that the ESV translates it, uh, which speaks about, the, the, the main idea of this verse is that the verse is speaking about relative costs for sexual sins. The point is, is that there is a comparison between the price of a harlot versus the price of an adulterer, an adulteress. And the point that's actually being made, the point that, that Psalm is trying to make is that adultery is more damaging than prostitution. That's the main point that Solomon is trying to make. Now, that may seem strange to say, but what Solomon is saying is this. He's saying, if, if, if you want a prostitute, there would be a certain fee that, we, that you'd pay. It could be like a, a, a price of bread or whatever. But what he's saying is that there is an implicit price in adultery, in actual adultery. And, that, uh, and the, the implicit price of adultery is not bread, but your very life. That in this way... Uh, adultery is, in some sense, the worst form of sexual sin. Now, again, that might seem strange to say in light of the way in which this world we have so many uh, sexual perversions, but it is, in fact, in fact something that we need to, to keep in mind. There is something that is particularly bad about adultery that goes beyond other kinds of sexual perversion. Now, this can be seen in, in a number of ways. Uh, one way it can be seen is the language of the seventh commandment itself, where the prohibition is specifically against adultery. Uh, you'll remember uh, that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, clearly teaches us that uh, there are other kinds of sins that can fall under the rubric of certain sins, uh, of, of certain commandments. So, you know, if, if hatred falls under the sixth commandment, you know, lust falls under the seventh commandment, which means that, you know, fornication falls under the seventh, homosexuality falls under the seventh. These are different kinds of sins. But uh, theologians have pointed out that the reason why uh, certain sins are mentioned specifically in the commandment is not to, to narrow the, it to being only about that sin, but it's to say that this is the worst form of the violation of this kind of commandment. And so with regard to the sixth commandment, we understand this. The worst form of abusive anger towards another person, that kind of sin like violence unto a person is murder. The, the, the worst thing you can do to a person is to kill the person. And so similarly, with regard to sexual sins, the rubric is adultery. And the implication there is that the worst sin that you can commit with regard to the seventh commandment is adultery. Now, why is this the case? The reason is because it's only in adultery. All those sexual sins are bad. They are entangling. They are particularly dangerous. But it's only in adultery where there is the violation of a covenant. And that's something that is not present even in prostitution. That in prostitution, there is no covenant that's been made. There's no covenant that's been violated. Uh, and this is the reason why, as we'll see, the reason why the cost 
of adultery is so high is because of the nature of the violation of this covenant, that there is a jealous party. In, in this example, there is, there is a, a man who, who goes into another man's wife, and it's the jealousy of the other husband that's been sinned against in the adultery because of the nature of the covenant that means that there will be nothing that will ever be accepted as payment or as in any way be able to make up for the fact that this man has sinned in this way. It's, it's the nature of the covenant that makes the sin so bad, that it is a, a violation of a covenant. And in this sense, it is the, it is the destruction of a family. That's the reason why it is so much worse. It, there is a family, a house that's been established by the covenant. And in adultery, there is violence being done to that institution. And that's not present in any other kind of sexual sin. And therefore, there is something particularly bad about adultery. Solomon is warning against all forms of sexual sin, but especially, especially he is highlighting the particular sin of adultery. Uh, particularly, that is a, there is a, a real added danger to this particular sin. Now, uh, why is it so bad? Well, Solomon tells us in verses 27 through 29, it is like fire. So there is this metaphor that he gives, and, he, and the, the, the metaphor is very easy to understand. If you, if you bring fire close to yourself, you're going to be burned. If you walk on hot coals, your feet are going to be burned. It's the very nature of the thing itself. Uh, very often today, there are kinds of arguments that go like this uh, with regard to sexual sin. They'll say, well, you know, if all parties agree to do it, then, you know, it's okay. It, it, it's not hurting anybody. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, several weeks ago, what I said was is that this, this kind of argument does not understand the very nature of the sin itself. It does not understand the nature of what is happening. It would be like saying, the example I gave before was something like, um, let's say you could jump into a lake and not get wet and therefore you wouldn't be cold when you get out. And the, the problem is with that statement is it's nonsensical because once you jump into the lake, you will by very nature get wet. The, the nature of the action of jumping into a lake is such that you must get wet. So it's, it's, it's nonsensical to, to ask the question, well, what if you could jump into a lake and not get wet? Then, then if, if you did that, you know, then you wouldn't be cold when you get out. You'd be nice and warm, right? And what Solomon is saying is, is that sexual sin is similar. You have to recognize the nature of the sin is like fire. You cannot go near to it without getting burned. And so there's, there's no way to give some sort of hypothetical situation where like, let's say, let's say, you know, that there could be all these kinds of sexual sins and it just doesn't hurt anyone. Uh, that's like saying, well, let's, let's, let's grab fire and see if it doesn't burn us. What Solomon is saying is, is that the nature of these sins is such that it will cause great pain in your life. And it is the fool who does not understand that. It is the fool who says, I can do these things. And as long as there is consent on both sides, then I know it will be okay. That, that, is, that, is not, that is not the nature of the sin. It is, a, it is a misunderstanding of the very nature of the action itself. And Solomon even goes further. Not only is the sin destructive by nature in terms of it being like fire, but there is a sense in which this sin is worse than other sins. The main comparison he makes here is the, com the comparison to thieves. And th th this comparison, again, is, is not difficult to understand. What Solomon is saying is, is you know, let's say there's someone who steals. And uh, if he steals and he's not hungry, then there will be no sympathy for him. But what Solomon is saying is there is actually a situation where a thief could be pitied. Uh, if someone steals for the sake of feeding himself or feeding his family, 
everyone will recognize that that's not as bad of a sin as what he otherwise could have committed. That in some ways, this, the nature of the situation mitigates the seriousness of that sin. And what Solomon is saying by comparison is, is that with adultery, there is no possible scenario where there could be any mitigation of the seriousness of the sin. And he's even using an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, you may understand if a person steals in order to, in, in order to feed his family, but he's still going to be punished for the sin. He's still going to be punished greatly for the sin. If he's caught, there will still be consequences for that sin. Now, how much worse will it be if you commit a sin where there is no possibility of any situation that could ever mitigate the seriousness of the sin? How will others see you if the thief who steals when he's hungry, if even he has to pay, if he, even he has to pay seven times, what will be required of the person who commits adultery against another man's wife? What, what, what would the husband possibly accept from that person? And what, what Solomon is saying here at the, at the end of the uh, passage is that there, there will be nothing that will ever be accepted. It is the nature of the jealousy of a husband such that he will never let it go. And he's not required to let it go is, is what, what is, is being spoken of here. There, there is a real legitimate jealousy that a husband has over his wife. You know, we, we typically think of jealousy as being a bad thing, and it is in, in almost every situation. The one exception of, of jealousy being bad is with regard to marriage. That in the covenant relationship, jealousy is actually a virtue. That if you do not have a jealous guarding of your wife or a jealous concern for your husband, that that in itself is actually a deficiency. That there actually has to be, in, by the very nature of the covenant, there must be a real jealousy. And this is even seen in God himself. This is the reason why. You remember that uh, uh, marriage itself is a covenant. Uh, we are in relationship to God by covenant as well. So there's this, this, this analogy between our relationship in marriage and our relationship to God. And you'll remember the way in which the prophets speak of the furious wrath of God. It's always as a jealous husband. Why, why is it? that God cares so much about his people's idolatry is because it is always described in the scriptures as harlotry. And in that context, God's righteousness, his righteousness, his positive righteousness is seen when the prophets describe God as jealous. He is rightfully jealous over his people when they commit such sins against him. And brothers and sisters, what Solomon is pointing out here is that there is in this same sense, because of the nature of the covenant, there is a righteous jealousy that a husband will have for his wife. And that will lead him to the conclusion that there is nothing that can ever be done to make up for this sin. There is no amount of gifts you can give to a man that can make up for this particular sin of adultery. That's the reason why it is so significant and weighty. You will pay for it with your life. None who touches the seductress who's married will go unpunished. There is none who will go unpunished. This is the reason why Solomon speaks in uh, the Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6, where he says he describes love as being as strong as death and jealousy as cruel as the grave. You, you, can't, you can't give anything for love without being despised. Everything else has a price, but you will be despised if you think that you can pay for love because of the nature, the strong nature of love as it is as it, we find it in the world. And so brothers and sisters, in this world, we live in a world that is full of sexual perversion, but we must remember even with regard to all these other sins which are so significant, 
that there is nothing so devastating as adultery. There is nothing so devastating as adultery. Do not commit the sin. This sin is committed to the peril of your own soul. And this is even further the reason why, in terms of all the things that happen in our culture, why uh, the concept of open marriages, which is becoming more and more popular and more and more common, is, is unbelievably wicked. And it's really in line with the perversity of this wicked generation. Uh, such sins lead to death. They lead to death and destruction. And there is a real ignorance and blindness in those who think that you can commit this kind of sin and just have a marriage, but not consider it to be closed. There's a real blindness to the reality that that will be destructive. It is destructive. It's a sin that leads to death. Uh, in our country, we have forgotten our covenant with God. And therefore, many have forgotten the covenant that they made with the wife of their youth. Those two things go together. Brothers and sisters, do not forget God and do not forget the covenant that you've made with the wife of your youth or for the women with the husbands of your youth. Now, when we think about this reality, uh, particularly here at the end in verse 35, this husband, he will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased though you give many gifts. Uh, one important thing to note is that the word for recompense has the same root as atonement. So here, what, what, what is being said is that there is, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to atone for the sin in the eyes of this husband if you commit adultery against this person. Now, brothers and sisters, here is where we see the grace and the mercy of God magnified. It is quite understandable. It's quite understandable that a jealous husband react in this way when he hears that another man has gone into his wife. It's quite understandable when this happens. But brothers and sisters, here is the amazing thing, that uh, every sin of adultery is committed not just against that husband, but against God himself. All of our sins in not following God and turning to idols, all of these sins, the sins of rebellion and not having the true God as our God, all these sins are seen as exactly the same, in exactly the same category to God as the sin of, the, 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 of adultery is seen in the eyes of the husband. So you think about what was required then for God to show mercy and grace to you, that he has this, this holy, jealous fury against those who would dare worship other gods and even, even worse, to worship gods made by their own hands and to, and to forget the God who is the source and fountain of all life. What would be required in one to say, I will forgive this people and I will be the one who will provide for their atonement? And this, brothers and sisters, is what, is what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and through the grace of our great God. You could think of the nature of God and you can understand that every single attribute of God, every way of describing him is incomprehensible. As one famous theologian has said, you know, we can, we can use words like omnipotence, like God is all-powerful, but who could even begin to fathom what that really means? And, and the point he was making is, you know, you, you, you could speak about anything about God, that God is not bound by space or time, that, that, uh, that God is triune, three in one, that God is everywhere present, that God knows all things, that he's infinitely wise, that he's all-powerful, all these things you could say, every single one of them is incomprehensible. But brothers and sisters, 
Is it not in some sense even more incomprehensible that such a God could be sinned against in such a great way and then be merciful and gracious to those who have committed the sin? As incomprehensible as God is in every attribute, surely it also applies to his mercy and grace that we find. And what, what could you possibly say as you think about, as you hear in the gospel, that such mercy and grace has been shown even to you? That how could this even be possible? The only thing you could respond with and say is something like what Isaiah says. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Isaiah was saying that in the context of the mercy and grace that he was showing to a people who were wayward in their heart. Uh, such is the love that God has shown to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him and be saved. If you've committed this sin and, you are, and you're still here, you've not been destroyed, even more so look to him. Consider it a great mercy that God has not required you to feel the full weight and effects of this particular sin and cast yourself upon him. The, the, the text says there is nothing that could be given to a jealous husband to appease him. God had his own justice appeased by giving his own son. That was the cost of atonement. That was the only way the jealous husband could have his wrath atoned for. And it was given for your benefit. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do recognize the, the great weight of all sexual sins as the scriptures speak as the Apostle Paul has spoken in 1 Corinthians 6. But Lord, we see even more particularly here the sin of adultery as Solomon has uh, described it for us. Lord, how we do ask, how we do pray that you would deliver us uh, by wisdom, that you would grant us the fear of yourself. And Lord, as we think about the ways in which we've fallen short, the ways in which we have sinned, even in violation of the seventh commandment, uh, Lord, even the ways in which we've sinned in not devoting ourselves wholly to you and so violating the first commandment. Lord, how thankful we are for your son. How thankful we are that there could be an atonement for such sins as we have committed. Lord, may it be that you would help us to see the glory of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be in awe of the atonement that he has made. And may it be that you would grant us the grace to walk in newness of life, that we might understand uh, how to be self-controlled, uh, how to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel and uh, not to fall for the temptations of, uh, of this world as it relates to sexual sins and especially adultery. Lord, we do ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity, 
and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to the center. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name. Thank you.